This program features David Ajay, architect of the New Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., in discussion with Surface Magazine Editor-in-Chief Spencer Bailey. It was recorded on October 19, 2016, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome. Thanks. Um, I wanted to start this conversation in Africa and then sort of make our way to Washington, D.C. Um, to begin, um, could you talk a little bit about some of your earliest memories? Uh, you were born in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, to a Ghanaian diplomat father. What, were, what was that sort of experience like, and what are some of your earliest memories of, of the continent, of the architecture? Okay. Um, I mean, what was, I think what was interesting about sort of early, I was born mid-60s, um, was that the continent had just sort of it moved from a sort of colonial construction to becoming a place where certain countries were becoming independent. But also that um, in that sort of mid-century sort of thinking, there was a lot of uh, modernism, a lot of master planning of cities and a lot of new construction that was happening all over the continent. And it was really, I mean, uh, it's kind of, to give you an analogy, uh, as my father would say, um, in the sort of 60s and 70s, Africa was seen the way China is seen now. It was kind of double-digit growth. It was booming. There was like kind of architecture, new architecture was coming out of the continent, and then it sort of came to a dramatic halt. Um, so I was sort of born into this soup, I guess, of um, sort of early modernism, a kind of uh, a world where at the same time you would have this kind of new contemporary architecture, but also you would have the vernacular architecture of the um, of the countryside, uh, of the agrarian countryside predominantly, um, especially in West Africa. Um, and so I had both those worlds. I kind of oscillated between going to my mother and father's villages and coming to cities and going into new tower blocks mm. and concrete buildings. And, and your family moved around quite a bit. You, mm -hmm. you went to Accra and then um, yeah. Beirut. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, born in Dar es Salaam, my brothers, uh, two of the, the three boys um, from my parents' relationship. So, Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya um, in the beginning, and then to Ghana, then to Cairo, to Beirut, to um, Jeddah, and then um, up to London. Yeah. And, that, and London happened when you were around 13 or 14. Exactly. Um, what was that transition like, leaving this continent that you'd spent, you know? A significant amount of your youth in. Yeah, no, it was uh, very dramatic. <laughs> it was, it was, it was. You know, London. So the Anglophone world was always, you know, the sort of apparently the the special special city. But it was, it was. I, I remember most distinctly, um, really seeing snow. Uh, you know, that was really <laughs> quite profound. I just, <laughs> I just recently saw. Um, Crazy movie, um, this great movie. Sorry, crazy movie, um, The Queen of Katwai. Um and there's a kind of beautiful scene where this uh, young kid goes to Russia and suddenly, you know, sort of <laughs> appearing. It's like incredible. I was like, that is actually a real experience. <laughs> Just sort of like, oh my God, that thing that you saw in images or drawings, and, and suddenly it sort of touches you. Um, I remember snow very well and playing in snow with my brothers. That was kind of one of the early. And actually, I remember also milk deliveries. Milk deliveries were 
that was really profound. <laughs> There's the kind of milkman who would drive up your neighborhood and he would have loaves of bread, he would have milk and yogurt and stuff, and you could just order, you know, what you needed. And they would deliver it on a, on a daily and weekly basis. It was quite extraordinary. We were just like, the milkman, wow. <laughs> Sorry. And, and what was the sort of formative moment when you started thinking about buildings, thinking about architecture, and thinking that that was something you could do as, as a career? I, I, didn't even, I didn't even think about architecture until my late teens. Um, I, my family was very much sort of science or um, politics or, or accounting. Um, business. Um, so I didn't have anybody in the family who I knew of that was creative. So it was very much, you know, I, so I was in kind of denial about my creativity well until I was 18. Um, and it's only when I, um, I sort of insisted on t taking, at, in London there's this thing called your A-levels, this is above your O-levels, it's sort of above your high school, you do your sort of thing before you go to university, it's a kind of exam that you take. And I, I wanted to take art. I was, take, I was doing physics, I was doing all that sort of stuff, but then I wanted to take art. And that, and that for me was a kind of respite. <laughs> it was where I'd go and hang out. And the most incredible uh, teacher who allowed me to sort of, sort of exist in that space, and you know, at the last, I said, I think a few months before I graduated, said to me, you know, you know you're actually really good at this, and you don't take it seriously. I know you don't, because you're just naturally good at it and you sort of breeze through it and you sort of leave, but maybe you should, instead of going to, you know, go to university, you should do a one-year foundation and at an art school mm. and just see if you, you like it. And I was completely thrown off. I was like, what are you talking about? What is that? I need to go to university. My brother's at university. I need to go to university. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, you know, he's doing science. I'm going to do science. I'm going to be better than him. <laughs> <laughs> Three boys in a line, you know, yeah. with a few years between us. Yeah. Dangerous. My mother had hell. <laughs> um, um, so um, I thought it was all about that. And then um, I went to art school and fell in love. I was just like, oh my god, I found my people. I found my tribe. Um, I was, uh, I think that first year I just completely, uh, what was interesting about the art world was that, you know, that, you, know, you, you know, school and academic life sort of kind of prepares you for a certain kind of course. And then you go to art school and you realize that they just sort of throw it all out of the window. And, and that was, deeply refreshing because I realized that I kind of could do many things, but I wasn't finding something I loved. And, um, and doing a foundation course was for me a kind of incredible way to just explore. And, and through it, I just, you know, encountered architecture again. Um, I was very interested in sculpture and, and, and worked a lot in sculpture, but then discovered uh, architecture because in a way for me, architecture, I was very concerned with sculpture that I couldn't find a kind of a critical think thought in my head about, you know, and it's to do with my own conditioning, about why I was doing it, except for my own pleasure, and that didn't seem to be good enough, <laughs> which was really daft, but, yeah. but I just, I kind of didn't feel like just doing it for my pleasure was enough. Mm -hmm. And somehow with architecture, I found this kind of very, I found that, oh, one could create things, but they could actually kind of change the world, or change somebody's life, or do something. And they would do it in the most incredibly soft way, because you just would, you know, people just accept these things, but actually they're profoundly life-changing. You know, a piece of architecture done well can totally transform a situation. Um, and I, I, I intuited that very quickly and, and became very excited by that power, I guess. 
And then I just suddenly started to remember that I had been very much in all these kind of environments where I was very kind of attuned to these environments, like these, the temperatures, for instance, the humidity, <coughs> the humidity of being near the equator, right. the kind of dryness of being in, you know, the, above the Sahara, um, being in the Sahel lands, you know, uh, in East Africa, or moving up to Europe and sort of more temperate and different lights, the kind of horizontal let's say, of light, the kind of, the sort of angles of light and the color of light um, actually being kind of very profound kind of um, sort of uh, things in my mind. Um, and, I, and as I've sort of studied architecture, I've kind of gone more and more back to those, mom those memories and how those memories were, were deeply um, important to me. Right. Mm. And, and sort of in between undergrad and, and your master's, you worked briefly for David Chipperfield mm -hmm. and then went to Portugal to work for a studio there. Eduardo Sutomoro. Yeah, and following that, you kind of eventually went on to start your own firm. That yeah. was around 2000 or? 2000 is kind of when I reformed it. I started in mm -hmm. about 95. Okay. Yeah, 95 is kind of when it sort of started and I had a, a dear friend. I was sort of working out of my bedroom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I had a dear friend who came and helped, yeah. and la 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 la. Yeah. Well, but, in doing research on mm here, -hmm. I found it interesting that, that you started Adjay Associates, your, your firm now, yeah. the same year, or, or around the same year, 99, 2000, when you started this project that took 11 years to um, go and photograph Africa, but yeah. not so much from an artistic photograph no, perspective. Really it was really, really, <laughs> really about documenting, yeah. um, documenting the place. And yeah. Uh, this book, which first came out a few years ago, and now there's a new sort of abridged edition. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because you divided it, and you were mentioning temperature earlier. You divided it really by climate yeah. and um, into several different, uh, seven different climactic zones. Yeah. Can you talk about why uh, you decided to look at the continent through these climactic zones and also what the impetus was to begin with for this project? Why did you want to go back and, and explore Africa? I mean, I think a couple of things. One, um, sort of, so from sort of 13 and a bit to, you know, my, my late 20s, early 30s, I hadn't really had a chance to go back to the continent. Um, and so I was kind of yearning to reconnect to, to that. And, um, and also I kind of wanted to discover the continent for myself. In a way, I had the continent very kind of sort of formed for me and shown to me through my father, mm -hmm. uh, who was very, um, very passionate Pan-African. And, and in a way, through my mother, you know, the kind of sensibility of what it is to be a Ghanaian and, you know, kind of that West African culture. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to discover it for myself. Um, so I just decided that I was going to be, you know, whilst, whilst doing my studio, I was going to, I thought I could do the whole continent in maybe two, three years. You know, I put aside some of money. I was like, I'm gonna do all 54 countries, <laughs> um, and and that was deeply naive because <laughs> I was working. But I thought, you know, I could take a week off or two weeks off or a month or whatever it was. I didn't have that much work then. Um, but actually, just from like navigating the lingua franca and the airline routes and the and the lack of roads sometimes and the driving and. It took 11 years, so yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah, when, it's like no the, the book is really fascinating, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of detail uh, in it 
when it comes to how how you interpreted these places you're going to. Yeah. The thing that I really loved is right at the end, at least of the new edition, <laughs> there's a photo of 52, or there's photos of some of the 52 drivers yeah. you had. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, I thought that was such a personal, cool touch to put that in the book. Um, yeah. Could you talk about kind of exploring the continent with these drivers and what yeah. that was like for you? Did you have any like really profoundly, like, wow, this is, not in Africa, I knew, or yeah. this is... I, I, I think I found that almost in every single country, even in Ghana. Um, what was interesting was to go and to not talk to any tourist guides, you know, not to be recommended, but like not to talk to any tourist guides, not to do anything formal. Um, but I would land and literally I would go to a taxi rank and I would just talk to some guys. I mean, I would never recommend it, but, <laughs> but I literally would just go and talk to the, the taxi rank guys and I'd, and I'd sort of after having a little bit of banter to see how their English was, if it was, you know, not an anglophone country, I would say, um, can, can we make a deal? You know, um, I'd love to see your city. And the name of the, you know, the, the, the thing is that I'd love to see every part of your city. And the incentive for you is to just keep, if you keep showing me parts of the city that are not repeats to me, I'll just keep paying you. So we'll work out a, a daily rate. <laughs> and so, and, and I, I kind of devised that as a way to sort of make sure that, you know, that editing of the city that happens with a tourist guide or whatever mm -hmm. would not happen. I, I sort of said, like, I want to see every part. Like, I want to see the worst parts, the bits that you think are super dangerous, and the best parts, mm -hmm. you know, the most so bougie. Unadulterated. Unadulterated African. filtering. Yeah. And it was, you know, and to use money as the incentive. Mm -hmm. And um, and it worked, you know. So I would drive with these guys, and they would drive and drive. And then, you know, I would get to go to their homes, and we'd have breaks. And, you know, in Ethiopia, somebody killed a goat for me. And it was just like, oh, my God. You sort of end up having these incredible yeah. adventures where, um, you know, uh, you, and, you know, you, you could tell when you'd, you'd finished the city. Yeah. It could take three days on something like Lilongwe, you know, in Malawi, small place. Or, you know, in Cairo, it would take like two weeks. You could mm. just keep going. It's just like, oh my God, this city is so dense. Yeah. yeah. And you would discover areas and routes. Um, but, you know, the game was you'd set the rate and you'd pay. And what were some of the more uh, profound architectural discoveries? I, I think that's when, for me, because in the beginning, the, the notion of geographies, identities, architectures, climates didn't really register profoundly. Um, it was just, okay, I'm going to this country and I'll take it off. And I started to realize that I was starting to think about these countries and thinking, is this Cairo architecture? Is this, you know, Kenyan architecture? And I started to think it was kind of absurd because these countries were less than 50 years old and those ideas were completely artificial. Um, and, and I started to think, well, if I can't actually be precise about what, what the country's architecture is, because it's really not real, um, what is real? And I then suddenly started to see that from Niger to Cameroon to, I was like, oh my God, it's the same kind of thing. Um, the architecture actually is about either silhouettes or incredible detail or incredibly pronounced figure. And that was to do very much with, you know, whether you're in the forest or whether you're in the desert, um, whether you were near the coast, where you had more temperate kind of architecture, kind of roofs overhanging like in Monrovia or Sierra Leone, you know, you would have this kind of, you know, either in the low version or the high version, you'd have like tin shack roofs, but always making this kind of porosity. And even the high villas would do the same thing in their own way. Um, and, and suddenly just documenting, I documented, I think, 40,000 images 
Um, and there are only like 3,000 in the, in the first book, and there's <laughs> less in yeah. the second book. So yeah. I probably have the biggest archive of the continent at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, uh, and in a way, what I started to do was just to kind of, I had this kind of war room where I'd pin them all up. And just by looking at the images from several sort of countries, you would start to see these qualities. So I really, the thesis, you know, and I think people said, well, what's new about geography or climate? Well, it's not about, I wasn't trying to kind of make something new. <laughs> I was trying to point out that actually there are these kind of, what was interesting is that this, these things occur even when people don't realize they're doing it. So I suddenly thought, okay, here we are making so much artifice and realizing and thinking that our artifice is kind of an abstract intellectual kind of thing, but actually we're still playing within the notion of culture, geography, and place mm -hmm. profoundly, even when we're not kind of understanding, because you would have a region and you'd see the same color palette. Like, why is the same color palette happening in Mauritania as it is happening in, you know, um, you know wherever it is, the edge of Nigeria, you know? like. And you'd go to another area, and then suddenly the same thing would happen. And then you suddenly realize that these, for me, I suddenly thought these are not, these are not circumstantial things. These are kind of real things that are happening. And, and by mapping that and looking at that, it became obvious that there were these tropes. And then so I said, let's eradicate this notion of boundaries, and let's really use satellite data to look at how the, the continent really looks without the abstraction of, of nation states. And it became really clear that there are these six geographies, the hills, you know, the savannas where the kind of rift valley is, where the volcanic is kind of, sort of, um, sort of, uh, you know, great, great fault line kind of created the plains, which are where there's no trees and where the animal kingdom's there, it's the best grass, etc. The forest area, which is very, where the river deltas are, which is on the coast, where most of the cities are, like 30 cities are in this forest region because it's the best place to plant, to live, to have access. And then, you know, you have the desert and then you have the coastline um, to Europe and you have the coastline to the Indian Ocean. Um, yeah. And um, very clear, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't really talk about Africa without um, colonialism. How did you no. see colonialism in the architecture, but also the local culture? Was, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there was a certain times blending of it, certain times very separate nature. Yeah, no, I think what's interesting is that when you look at the history of the colonial architecture, is that it starts off very much as a kind of artifice, a power statement, and then it kind of very quickly mutates. And, you know, you look at parts of even Rwanda, like right up to very recently, even the kind of colonial architecture of the sort of Belgian empire was a kind of, you know, typical colonial architecture, but then started to create these very interesting terraces that move up and down the hills, mm -hmm. which create these arcades, which create these inside-outside spaces, because that's how the kind of culture was working. So there's a mutation that happens and a hybridity that happens where the two things kind of shift. And in a way, that's the world that I kind of come into. I'm born into that mutating world where I sort of say that the technology kind of lands and then it has to perform. Mm -hmm. And um, so that moment of the performance, I think, is that kind of moment where somebody like Oscar Niemeyer talks about tropical modernism, he invents right. that word. And I think that's what he's talking about. That's like the performance of the technology in this very different extreme climate that is not necessarily imagined for it, but actually is the beginning of a kind of way of understanding how technology form um, can have a kind of relationship to specific context. And I think it, it's tested out really fully all over the world, but in Africa it's profoundly tested because of that um, moment of moving from colonialism to nation building and that kind of explosion of wealth that happened at that moment. More than India, um, it happens profoundly in South America, but South America had a kind of different colonial project. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, it's really interesting. So that, I think, became like, in fact, the real, um, um, you know, I, first I thought it was isolated, and I sort of thought, oh, it's just about Africa. But then I suddenly realized, actually, no, it's about the world. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of suddenly dawned on me that was, that, that you were just, this was the world. And that if you kind of used the same methodology, you would see the same things. And I, I have been, yeah. we have been looking at that in the studio. We look at cities, we look at, you know, parts of Europe, it's all the same. It's all, depending on the region and where you are, certain kind of ideas about classicism or not play out, and they play out to do with a certain way in which the context and geographies are actually performing. So we've actually not escaped what we think we've escaped right. by creating incredible, incredible artifice. We're actually performing. Which uh, is a great transition to talk about your new museum in DC. Mm -hmm. um, it was inspired by a Yoruban form. Could you talk about how you discovered this form and, and why you decided to use this as a, a design sort of conceit for the Smithsonian building. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a bit reductive. I mean, there's been some kind of reductive yeah. <laughs> sort of super summaries. <laughs> but um, I think that once I kind of understood the sort of briefing document that was prepared by Max Bond and Phil Freelon, who were who are my team members on the project, they, they prepared the kind of briefing document for the Smithsonian before the competition. Um, once I understood it, I realized that actually the building had to operate a certain way, um, um, and you know it had this kind of absolutely fundamental section, which was history, and then it had these two fluid sections, which were more um, about the kind of moment from uh, the migration from um, the agrarian south to the urban cities, and then and, and so in the way the beginning of the professional class of the African American community, and then now. And now is this kind of explosion of the kind of hybridity that happens when two worlds meet and fuse and mutate, and this idea that you know the culture changes, music, literature, art, everything kind of flowers into this new thing, uh, this new mutation. Um, and I thought that was really kind of beautiful, and and um, I, for me, became interested in this idea that that something had to be rooted in the ground. This history was rooted in the ground or in a podium. In the competition entry, it was a podium. And then these other two would be up in the in this corona. And for me, the, what was interesting was to create a narrative where it was a big house, and this house had this kind of journey between the what I call the attic to the roof, mm. um, or you know from the ground to the top of the tree. So this kind of metaphor. And I, I became very interested in the the idea that also one had to kind of find a way to make a building which would use light rather than hide from light. Most museums hide away from light. Um, so I wanted to use the idea of um, light as shaft, as physical form that's defining space, through to light as a kind of sort of um, sort of light being kind of um, um, sort of refracted through things, um, um, diffused to things, never reflected and 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 just becoming a kind of glow, but the idea of always being physically able to see the light, and and the reason for that was that that became about understanding that the geography of Washington is that moment where the south and the north crush each other, sort of the, tech, the, the two geographic plates. And in a way, Washington is very interesting because it can be incredibly cold and incredibly tropical at the same time, and that's this incredible geography. So it's at once, if you look at Longfont and all those characters who sort of planned it, the sort of the notion of the classical city is what's kind of implied, but actually the classical city lives in the sort of humid south. It's like a tropic. Mm -hmm. uh, so in fact, the mall was a swamp. Um, 
So that's, you know, it's backfilled. Mm -hmm. So actually it's, um, so you're in this kind of very interesting geography. And I became really fascinated by this idea that this is a kind of edge of the forest. It's the forest, it's a forest architecture that sort of for me needed to be made here. And I think once I understood that it was a forest architecture and this idea of the kind of this rise, I started to think about the African American community and I started to think, okay, how would one talk about identity in this? And this idea of then going back to the forest um, and the notion of what the forests meant to um, <coughs> descendants of, of, of the community now, because essentially we know that the entire community comes from between Senegal and Angola, what is Angola mm -hmm. now? And predominantly Nigeria and Angola are the two kind of places where a lot of the community's DNA are found. Um, and at that time, sort of going back 400 years, going back 1,000 years, the most important um, cultural kingdom was the Yoruba. They were the, I mean, there were lots of other kingdoms, lots of other kind of tropes, but there's a kind of argument that the Yoruba were really the kind of, mm -hmm. the sort of Greeks of that West African mm -hmm. sort of, sort of the refiners of a kind of, of, of an idea. And, and with that, always, I know that, you know, talking to people in Ghana, et cetera, there was always this kind of relationship to those courts. Like, um, people would learn crafts and take them to other places, and it would mutate and become more local in those places. Like all courts, you know, where there's an intelligence, the intelligence gets diffused. So um, I became really fascinated that there was this kind of art form that was built from the forest, which was about wood, uh, sort of exceptional wood carving skills, exceptional kind of treatment of um, um, uh, sort of form making, predominantly in timber in the forest, um, and started to look at wood artifacts. <coughs> and then suddenly, really accidentally stumbled on um, this form. You know, usually you have the traditional artifacts and motifs. The problem with most of the artifacts on the continent, which are everywhere in the world, is that they are beautifully scientifically understood, but not culturally. Understood. So you can look at thousands of objects and understand them scientifically because the beginning of that sort of exploration time was about a scientific exploration in the same way that, you know, um, the Egyptian sort of tombs were kind of excavated. So that notion of science more than culture was the kind of preeminent way of thinking about it. But what you lose with that is the meaning of the damn things. So you have these incredible objects and you have to sort of try and guess what these things are and unless if you can find roots. But what is what was interesting is that I with the, the Yoruba um, crown that I was referring to, the shrines exist now. So those are shrines almost like, think of them like um, Ize Shrine. These are shrines that are kept and master craftsmen look after and repair in Benin um, and the areas around Benin. And they're basically structures for shrines for certain deities, for certain kings, for certain kind of groups. And basically the idea that um, these structures have gone back, if you speak to the master craftsmen who look after them, generations gave me a clue to understanding what that form could be. Mm. You know, what, what the form could mean to, that, to those ancestors. It would be a very powerful, it would be the, it'd be the image of a cathedral, right? So it would be a very powerful image. And I thought that was a kind of interesting starting point and a, and a point where one could actually use the reference without just saying it's mm. something I like, but it kind of had this kind of... So then coming back, this idea of a, a, a sort of a, a, an object that could create um, the notion of the silhouette and the notion of the enclosure um, to this very abstract building which was in three parts and then the circulation system which is on the perimeter to kind of deal with light um, 
just became very fascinating. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's not something I would normally do, but it's, it felt within this project the right thing to do. It seemed like we were trying to make a building which was these three parts. It had a glass enclosure. We needed to make um, a solar shading system for it. Um, you could use the kind of lessons of tropical modernism and kind of create a kind of brie solaire, which is what it is. But then the brie solaire, just as a technical performing object, would render the object like a scientific project. And I was like, this is what we need to move away from. Yeah. We cannot keep just making them scientific. We need to make them cultural. And how much of your exploration of Africa, sort of leading up to winning that project, did you bring to this? What, were, was there a lot of that experience? For yeah, you? I think that I think that's I, ironically the, the the travels opened up my kind of ability to see um, the forms in their context in a new way, mm. and allowed me to go to places that I would normally not go um, and see those forms. So I think that there's an, there's no you know this one does things and you don't know why you're doing it, maybe you have a sense of things. Yeah. And, and there's so much about the African-American experience that is trauma, but on the other side of that, there's so much about it to celebrate the culture, the art, the music. Completely. How did you, how could, I mean, what went through your mind in terms of, okay, how am I gonna fit all this in one building? <laughs> um, I think what was very clear in our competition entry in my mind was that this was not, you could look at many stories. I said, this is a 200 year story which was incredibly difficult at the beginning, but within 200 years has completely transformed a continent. You know, for me, the African-American experience is not a kind of minor experience. It's, it's one of the most important, with the Indian American, yeah, the, the, the sort of American Indian experience, is kind of one of the central ways of understanding the American, the American experience now. So I think, you know, Lonnie talks about this notion of the lens, and I speak, you know, I, I love this, this idea that you know, the museum is, to, to understand the community, it's, it's a way to understand what America fundamentally is. Um, and so it, that became really, really fascinating also, that this is a kind of, that you weren't just making something that was just on the, on the you know, a sort of small niche. It was really a kind of a way to unpack the narratives again through, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful way that stories can be retold by looking at it from a different author's position. Right. Yeah. And I'm curious from sort of a personal standpoint, mm. um, you know, having grown up in Africa, having been a black man in Britain, mm. what was it like to explore the African-American experience, something that maybe you shared as a black person but didn't necessarily share having not grown up in Yeah. No, I mean, I, I you know, going back to the beginning of this thing, the African-American experience I always describe as the kind of modernity of the black diaspora going and sort of outwards and inwards in a way. I think that Africans saw the kind of struggle of African-Americans as the kind of modernity, the kind of emancipation, the kind of structural shift from being kind of seen as people that were you know, serving others to being people that were kind of actually part of the narrative. Um, so this idea of kind of recognition is something that you know, my father's generation you know, talks about, you know, my dad talked about this idea that you know, it's fundamental to understand that, you know, a lot of civil rights people came to Nkrumah. He knew, you know, he worked for Nkrumah. So, um, you know, this idea of kind of understanding the kind of the circular nature of things and then the, the, the connected nature, the, the way in which things are more connected than you think than the separatedness. So actually as kind of, 
Africans growing up, young Africans growing up, from that, you know, the, the African-American story for me was a fundamental part of how I understood the lens of being in the modern world. So my experience of it is through that lens too, somehow. So, so in a way, even though it's, you know, and it, it's, it's no way to say that I'm trying to say that I'm um, African-American. It's not at all. It's just to say that there's a kind of, there's a way in which there's a diaspora which is kind of super interconnected through this dialogue. Maybe less so now, but I think it actually is, but I think people don't realize how connected it is. Mm -hmm. But I think then it was profoundly connected. So for me, that, you know, learning about seeing Muhammad Ali do what he was doing was, was as empowering for African Americans as it was for Africans. We were like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> you're saying you're a person? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, whoa, yeah. new concept, you know? Um, so we underestimate how profound that was. Um, mm. Um, so, so I think that it was, I think any talented architect could do it. Yeah, but you know, in a way, but you have to have the talent and the empathy. I think the empathy is important, mm -hmm. I think. Because I think it was, the story is so long in the making, you know, it's a hundred years to get to this museum of fighting many people. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there had to be a kind of, I think this project, Required a kind of patience and a sympathy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and yeah. I think the other thing you're you're leaving out is experience. Your your firm had really grown. Yeah. Um, you you'd completed uh, the Skolkovo School yeah. of Business outside of Russia, outside of Moscow, yeah. and and the MCA in Denver, yeah. the Sugar Hill Project here in Harlem. Yeah. Um, what did this building mean to you personally? To to win this commission, to have this essentially uh, you know four hundred thousand square foot project to undertake. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just, I remember that the moment I got that call from Lonnie's office and, um, uh, and it was really profound. It was, it was I was sh shocked, <laughs> really, really shocked. Because um, it was sort of like, oh my God, the world just changed, the air just changed. <laughs> <laughs> Everything just shifted, yeah. you know, and it sort of felt physically like that moment, but it was very much, with me, and then I kind of sort of quickly disseminated that energy to my team. Oh my God, we're going to have to do this. Um, um, and what's been amazing over the eight-year journey is that you know I talked about the project. People, oh, it's great, you're doing this amazing project. But you know, people were not quite sure what we were actually really doing. And also, it's very difficult when a project's just drawings and images mm -hmm. to really get in. So in a way, we've had it for a long time, quietly incubating it. And then suddenly, it was just like, pow, it got released in September. Yeah. And, um, and everybody sort of started going, oh my god, that's what you've been doing. <laughs> it's like, I've been talking about it for eight years. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's really, it's very beautiful as, yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the meaning behind the project, mm. uh, it originally had started in conversations dating back to 1915. So, Correct. you know, this is, um, this is almost nearly a century uh, in the making. Correct. And I think we're also in an interesting political climate and one that uh, to, to see it completed this fall, it's yeah. a very kind of momentous yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about the politics you experienced uh, and, and what it took to actually get a building made I mean, clearly that's not uh, a simple... You know. No, no, you have to be a fighter. <laughs> so it's like you learn all these things after you've sort of trained as an architect. It's yeah. like, oh, you have to be a fighter. You have to be... Um, um, yeah, no, it's, it's funny. The building was supposed to be finished last year, and we were so depressed because we, um, you know, uh, it hit, we hit water three years ago. 
um, because of the swamp, because we went down 90 feet a little bit too low, and we hit the old swamp. And it was terrifying, you know, and it, and it actually almost kind of created a real problem with the, um, with the budget and everything. It was like, oh my god. Um, but what it did was that it meant that we had to make a second retaining wall, mm. and Davis Brody Bronze was kind of incredible sort of skills were brought in to help us understand how to make this double double basement. Um, and then um, we uh, sort of had to kind of remake, remake the project based on that slowing down. But it's ironic, because we were all just talking like, if it had opened last September, it would have been great, <laughs> but it would not have had the impact right. that it had. And in a weird way, by opening this September, it just had even more intensity. And so it kind of really makes you wonder yeah. why things happen. So, yeah, I mean, right as Obama's know, finishing his it's term. It's really like it ends, you know, we, you, that date was given almost a year ago. It was like immovable. So the project had to. When it, had it had to it, the had opening to. was two days after your 50th birthday. Yes. <laughs> there was a moment when it was actually being touted on, on my birthday, which petrified me. <laughs> and then it just naturally slipped to 24th. I was really relieved. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, you know, fighting for the project, it was, you know, eight years in the making, four years to build. Um, you know, we had to present to Congress, to, mm -hmm. to, to, I mean, countless commissions and fine art boards and park services and local communities and DC authorities. And, and you know, I, we were sort of warned um, early. I sort of, you know, we brought in Max, sort of talked about bringing in um, the Smith Group who had worked in the area. So in the competition um, uh, sort of phase, we knew that this thing was going to really evolve and it had to have legs. So I kind of developed a strategy where I kind of was clear what I was going to, um, what I had to sacrifice and what I couldn't sacrifice. Yeah. I had to kind of develop the scheme with like, okay, which bits are gonna come off and where it's gonna go? <laughs> and sort of steer the arguments almost towards getting to a place where we could get the building we wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, part, of, part of the business at that level, at that political level in that sort of moment is to understand how to understand what this thing is going to be. So you're not, you're sort of ahead of it rather than behind it. Because there's nothing worse than somebody saying something that you're not prepared for and then having to really right. like rethink everything. Um, so in a way, you, you sort of have to prepare as much as you can um, for the thing going out in the world um, and, and understanding what you need to do. That was a big lesson. So now I, I you know, we're doing projects and everything feels very easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my team were like, oh my god, that's so hard. What's going on? I'm like, we're doing this, we're not doing that. <laughs> And uh, before we open it up for a few audience questions, um, I wanted to sort of take us back to Africa, yeah. um, where you've completed several projects, a, a home for the, the former UN secretary, um, a concept shop in Lagos, and you're currently working on a slavery museum in Ghana. Could you talk a little bit about that project, and has what you've done with the Smithsonian informed any of that project? If so, how? And no, what's interesting is that uh, this, uh, working on Smithsonian has tipped a sort of uh, conversation that's actually even also happening in London, uh, in England, mm. sorry. And so in Liverpool, we've just been commissioned to look at a project which is talking about England's kind of relationship to the, so the way there's a kind of triptych, there's a kind oh, of reverse, wow. yeah. Um, so in a way, in, in, uh, in West Africa, we're looking at 
you know, the, the study was brought through the government to kind of think about the slave forts. So um, there's a kind of tabula rasa. There are a couple of forts that are very prominent, but in a way, the community don't want to know about that history. There's a kind of suppression of that history. And I'm um, of the mind that you have to kind of face the history, all its kind of difficulty, and so that you can move on. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been kind of doing this thing of talking about surveying the whole. There were about 140 forts across the entire coast. So in a couple of hundred years, in a couple of hundred years, they built quite a lot of infrastructure for, for the extraction. Um, quite a lot of them are gone, but they're very important. And, and we said that we want to map all these and to start to think about how these artifacts, you know, at the moment, they're kind of very much, you know, artifacts with pinned walls mm -hmm. and, you know, cannonballs rolling on the ground. But we want to kind of think about a very serious um, sort of study, scientific, curatorial, cultural study that looks at how we can create artifact experience, the artifact experience of the architecture, mm -hmm. and then create museum infrastructure that supports and creates a kind of curatorial and educational study and a visitor experience. To a more immersive visitor experience can allow you to understand what these things were and where they are now mm -hmm. and what the cultures were there. So and I, I imagine, Ghana's I, one. I imagine yeah. culturally also, I remember in a previous conversation we've had, you talked about creating Alara, this concept shop yeah. in Lagos, in part to get people to sort of yeah. look at really well-made things, yeah. look at, at, at fine objects yeah. in a retail environment, almost in the way they would a museum, because yeah. they're not used to queuing to like go into a museum yeah. the way they would, say, the Smithsonian. Correct. So how, how, how have you been thinking about that with this No, um, and, and you'll see, I mean, the, the, the project is still in development. Mm -hmm. um, um, but, um, but you'll see, but it's, it's, a, it's this premise of T turning the fort much more into an artifact, more like a kind of ruin almost. Mm. And, and the idea of a kind of making entropy in the ruin rather than trying to reconstruct it as some kind of pristine object. And then to create new buildings and new urbanism around it, which allows either objects to be reenacted in a kind of new way with new kind of curatorial framing or or to also create certain spatial narratives which are difficult to do in the existing building because of the way the plans work. So it's taking memories and and shifting them and you know, so in a way, you know, the buildings are working with the kind of the power form of the forts and flipping them. I mean it's, you don't, you can't imagine what I'm talking about. So you'll see it. <laughs> but anyway, it's very interesting study. And then in, in Liverpool we're sort of becoming very interested. There's a project now to talk about um, how Liverpool kind of, you know, becomes this incredibly wealthy English city because of the slave trade, three and a half million slaves are traded through the sort of Liverpoolian sort of traders. Um, and so there's a kind of idea about how do we kind of talk about that there. And there, you know, um, Toxteth, which has got a very interesting history with black, Caribbean, um, and African sort of immigrants to England, is the kind of area where um, uh, a lot of those communities settled. But actually, it's also the area where a lot of those merchants settled, who the new money actually moved to Toxteth mm. from slavery, built palaces and big buildings, and ironically then became the kind of immigrant ghetto in the 21st, in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, how does that, how do we talk about this, this kind of very interesting history? And I mean, it's fascinating. It's like you tease history yeah. and things keep pulling apart. I mean, literally the same routes that the ships would take. Literally, we're wow. reversing with these cultural tropes, yeah, these cultural institutions. Um, but I, I, think, I think 
if we manage to do the other two, I hope we can do the museum in Liverpool and I hope we can do the museum in Ghana. For me, that's the kind of project that is the completion of this thing. Mm. But I think it then, it then allows and also demonstrates to the continent, or maybe demonstrates to America, demonstrates to England, that, you know, that, that these are things that are still alive. You know, mm -hmm. that I think a lot of the issues that we're dealing with are still alive. They, just because time has passed, it doesn't mean things have passed. They cannot get inherited, and we need to kind of understand them and uncover them to understand who we are with each other, especially in the 21st century as we become mega cities and communities and yeah. all this sort of stuff. Well, thank you, David. And um, we have time That's for a, a few <laughs> audience questions. So if uh, anyone wants to just raise their hand, mm -hmm. uh, there's no mic, so just shout. Yeah, shout. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, quick question. How do you think about your inspirations, either architects that you sort of like stylistically or that you really respected or admired, and, and mm -hmm. how have you incorporated maybe some of their architectural styles into your own work? Mm -hmm. um, I, I made a conscious effort not to do architecture like that. Um, so I love a lot of architects, but I made a very conscious effort that I was not going to be the kind of architect that would learn a style or, or evolve a style. I kind of think that, I call that the scientific method. Um, you know, and in a way, I'm, I, I think it's exhausted for me. So I'm interested in the cultural method. <laughs> so I'm interested in uh, what I call those skills. I call them technologies, like how to build with steel, how to build with concrete, how to build like on technologies, and how do you use those technologies within the 21st century to s express cultural ideas. Because in a way, for me, the most powerful architecture, you know, um, architecture that kind of creates narratives be before the sort of functionalism of the 20th century, uh, any kind of classical architecture from Asia, Africa, South America, right through to Europe, creates a kind of technology and then uses a cultural I idea to kind of create the language. And I'm very interested in that. I think that actually we that we think that that's gone, but I actually think you can keep you can keep redoing it. So I'm interested. If you look at my buildings, yes, there's a kind of technological kind of rigor that you're seeing, and a, and a, and a performance and a kind of a fabric. I'm interested in the kind of nature of things, the physical nature of things, because I think that in the end, I'm not interested in architecture somehow becoming not physical, because it's profoundly physical. So like the enjoyment of the physicality of it is very important, but that it is. It is moving out of just performance to, to this other reading, this engagement. And what I'm interested in with this notion of geography and with place and people is that I'm trying to see if I can, within, I'm sort of moving to a point where I guess I don't believe in the notion of a nation in any way. I believe in the region <coughs> and the planet. So I believe in an architecture that's about the place and its peculiarities and the planet i.e. where it is on the planet and what that means. So my work is always trying to kind of make sense of that code, whether it's Beirut, Jeddah, Russia, Washington, Africa. So each project tries to find, so, so in a way I'm not interested in a grand style, like here are the five orders, you must use them like this, these are high, this is low. I'm more interested, here's a specific place, in it's the beginning of the 21st century, this is what it's doing, this is the technologies that are available. So each one is a kind of narrative, it's a smaller narrative within a narrative. Oh, really?
then one image that I was surprised to see was that from inside of the museum, where you kind of have that like wrought iron looking design, mm -hmm. you can mm -hmm. see really clearly mm -hmm. a large part of the monument. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just wondering how, or if at all, it informed your project both in the proximity to it, and then also just knowing, and I don't know too much about the structure, like how, but I think it's a symbol or structure that dates back to like, Which bit? <laughs> the, the monument, but the oh yeah, the monument is yeah, is so it's, it's a it's a it's a what I call a Klaus Oldenburg version of the needles of Karnak. <laughs> <laughs> if I can be a little bit generous with the way I'm sort of, but yeah, Karnak Karnak is one of the oldest cathedrals in the world, um, and it had three pylons that had silver pyramid tops, which were supposed to collect the energy of the cosmos down to the heart, and. You know, it was one of the treasured things when, you know, the colonial kind of explorers went there. They were like, we want one to, one went to America, you know, one took one to Italy, one to England, one to France. <laughs> the Americans wanted one, they couldn't get one, so they built a big one. <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but that's literally what happened. They were like, this is one of those treasured objects, and they wanted it, so it became the symbol. So yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an African symbol. Yeah. In, in the middle of Washington. And I thought, I totally make that relationship. When I was making the arguments with, the, with all the kind of groups, I said, so that there's this, you, you think that Washington's about the Palladian classical, or well, Palladian classical, or the sort of, you know, the kind of Renaissance classical, but actually it also is about, it's about the entire spectrum of the classical world. So it talks about Africa right through to, you know, Bramante's dome. So it's, so where are we? And if you look at the Yoruba, the Yoruba talk about their relationship to southern Egypt. So they're a strand, their architecture is a kind of strand of that same classical language. So, you know, where are these lines where we draw them? When we make scientific sort of pockets, we sort of make all these nice cubes, but actually things are much more connected than we, than we realize. So that was kind of one. And the building sort of has this way of making a relationship to the site by refusing any center. You always have to go to the perimeter. So there's no core, there's no void. The void is really a kind of what I call a crack. Uh, around the, the entire form. It's a building with another skin. And you always have to go to the perimeter because I want you to always be cognizant of the relationship to the context. So I make seven windows. There are seven windows as you rise from the, the bottom to the top, which frame everything from the National Archive, the reflecting pool, Washington's monument perfectly. It actually frames the entire thing. And it kind of leads you into a curatorial space, which is about the military, the first soldiers of America, the first general. So there's a kind of relationship that's happening, looking at uh, Jefferson's Dome, understanding the Bill of Rights, looking at Congress, the way you know, law is made. It's so the seven windows give you a sort of overview of exactly where you are. So this idea of talking about the specificity of place is, for me, articulated through this idea of framing that the internal curatorial space is having to engage with. They wanted, they wanted a, you know, I remember when the, cura, you know, the exhibit designers were like, we want to close everything off. And we're like, no, you have to make these relationships. Um, and now everybody loves them. It was a big fight. <laughs> well, thank you, David. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you for listening to this 92i program. For more information, visit 92i.org. This program is copyright 2016 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.